to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. In keeping with the sparseness of the season, there is no bumper pre-roll video, and uh, thus no epic movie music. But we are still in the series. We are in the ser- this series of the book of Luke, and uh, to be honest, I can't remember what, no, we're in part 14, my note says. So here we are, at the 14th part of this book of Luke, we're in uh, chapter 7, is where our text will be tonight. And, uh, you, you know, you can always catch up on some of this stuff on, online, there's podcasts and recordings and things like that if you'd like to catch up. And, and then we've got our little kiosk in, this, uh, in the lobby here with CDs. Remember that technology? So if there's a few of you that want that, you can do that as well. Um, we, we have three kids, and uh, no doubt you've seen them running around post-service, maybe pre-service. Uh, maybe you've um, heard them during the service. Uh, but we, Holly and I have three kids. Our oldest is about to turn six in a couple weeks, uh, Sophia. And then we have Nora, who's four. Uh, and we have Jonas, who's just over a year old. And those of you that are parents in the room, you, you remember the stage when your kid, is, your child, excuse me, your dearly beloved offspring, is... Um, <laughs> is trying to get your attention, and as it sometimes happens, we're distracted. We're, we're you know, engaged in the conversation, or we're thinking about dinner, or we're fussing at them to pick up their room, or you clean up the room, or, you know, and, and, and once in a while, they're, they're really trying, they, they try repeatedly to get our attention, you know, mom, you know, this is my favorite, is when they start just calling, you know, mom, you know, mom, mom, and then when it doesn't work, they say, Holly, <laughs> you know, and when kids figure out, you know, your name, and then they start calling, and they're just trying to get your, what, what's going to work here, you know? Uh, you know, babe, is that your name? You know? No. And, and I, it, it's a little bit like how we are sometimes with the Lord, and we're trying to say, okay, God, do I have your attention, or what do I have to do to get your attention? And I, and I don't know if you've ever been in this spot, I know I have, where there's lots of different moments where it feels like, Okay, God, look, whatever it takes, I need your attention. Would you please listen now? Would you please look now? Would you please, Lord, whatever it is you're doing, would you stop that for a moment and listen? Anybody felt that way? I mean, I think all of us in one way or another have, have had this feeling of, okay, God, no, Father, um, what, what do we have to do? And is it, is it a, a certain prayer or is it a certain a thing that we say or a name that we call? We've talked about, as we've studied the book of Luke, we've talked about how the Pharisees, all of the Jews, in fact, of Jesus' day, had this hope and this longing for Yahweh to intervene, for God to intervene, to put an end to this exile that they were in. They weren't literally in geographical exile, but they were under oppression. It all was not right in their land, and they knew it. And so there was this longing to say, okay, God, what do we got to do to make you pay attention? And so you see this question surface in different ways. Uh, how, how do we usher in the age to come in the language of, 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 of the prophets? How do we get Yahweh to act? How do we, when is the Messiah coming who will overthrow your enemies? When, what do we have to do? 
one of the answers to that, or one of the responses to that, was a group that we talked about a few weeks ago called the Pharisees. You remember this? And the Pharisees sort of had this belief that, okay, look, God is not acting to, set, to restore and to destroy our enemies because we've been unfaithful. Remember, that's why we were sent in exile in the first place. And so the Pharisees sort of figured, well, look, maybe if we can obey the Torah well enough, that'll kick God into action. Maybe if we can be super good at being obedient, we can crank the lever, you know, the little secret lever. Oh, there it is. As if you're sort of, you know, searching for that brick that is going to make the wall turn and the secret entryway open up, you know. Maybe this is it. And Jesus repeatedly addresses the Pharisees and says, look, don't be so confident in your ability to obey. You really can't. You're unfaithful and it's time to admit that. Our version of that is sometimes we think, okay, so what do I need to do to get God to act? Is it if I have enough faith? Is it if I have uh, maybe the, the right prayer? Maybe if I don't confess any bad things? Maybe if I just, you know, uh, and maybe you've been around people who if you say anything negative like, oh, I think I'm coming down with a cold. So don't confess it. You know, don't confess it, please. Because if, maybe if you don't confess it, then you won't. I know of a charismatic Christian school somewhere in the country that doesn't have that doesn't that doesn't have sick days. They have get well days because they don't want the kids to confess that they're sick. And it's this this obsessive thing of ooh ooh don't you said the wrong thing. And if you said the wrong thing, the magic lever of healing is not going to come. And so please don't. I know some of you think. Really? There's people, there are people who believe this way. But may I suggest to you that all of this is a response to the same human question, what do I do to get God's attention? How do I make God stop what He's doing and notice? Our text tonight is in Luke 7, and uh, the first 17 verses, and we're going to look at a couple different stories here. So if you'd turn there while I take a sip of water. Yeah, this is uh, uh, maybe awkward, as awkward for me as it is for you to be standing here on the ground and look over this projector table, but I think it's good. This is about the word of the Lord more than it is about the messenger. Luke 7, verse 1, we'll start there. After Jesus had finished teaching all this to the people, he entered Capernaum, and a centurion there had a slave who was highly regarded, but who was sick and at the point of death. And when the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and heal his slave. And when they came to Jesus and urged him earnestly, he is worthy to have you do this for him. I think the NIV says he deserves you to do this. Because he loves our nation and even built our synagogue. And so this is kind of a big deal. He's been friendly to the Jewish. Here's a Roman soldier who's been kind and favorable to the Jews there. This is kind of a big deal. If you're wondering why would these Jewish elders intercede or, or stand and they go ask or go and ask a favor on his behalf, it's because they liked him. He, he, was doing, he was helping them out. And so Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not presume to come to you even myself. If you're wondering, 
Why does this guy send Jewish elders? Why doesn't he just go himself? Isn't that proper manners? No, it's a way of saying, look, I don't even deserve to talk to you. Let me just send messengers. And then he says, oh, they told him that I am worthy? No, no, please. Tell him that I'm not worthy. I don't even want to presume to come to you. Instead, say the word and my servant must be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and he turned and said to the crowd that followed him, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And so when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave well. This is a remarkable story. This is a man saying, okay, Jesus, I don't even need you to show up. Just speak. Just say the word. It'll go the distance. Look, I'm a person under authority. I get how this works. I say go and they go. I say stop and they stop. There's something about you that has this God authority to it. And so you just speak. You just say the word. This story of the centurion has echoes of another Old Testament story. A figure. You remember a couple chapters ago in Luke 4, Jesus, after quoting from Isaiah the prophet, uh, recalls the story of Elisha and Naaman. Do you remember this? And Jesus, after saying that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, he says, look, wasn't Naaman this Gentile that the prophet Elisha was sent to to bring healing? Now, if you stop and think about it for a moment, a lot of times when the New Testament writers mention a person or reference a story, Uh, it's very likely that the listeners had the whole story in the back of their mind and were able to bring it all to the forefront of their their minds. They just need, it's like sort of for us mentioning a headline. If I just said to you, Japan, you're like, oh, I know what's happening. And you, all this imagery and all this stuff comes to the front of your mind. When Jesus says, Elisha and Naaman, they're like, oh yeah, we know that story. And so Luke, there's a, there's, a, there's a good chance here that Luke is telling this particular story of Jesus and a centurion to make us see some parallels here with Naaman. Who was Naaman? And how is the centurion like him? Both Naaman and the centurion were well-respected Gentile officers. They both had intercession, so to speak, from Jewish people. Naaman from a Jewish girl, and this centurion by these Jewish elders. In other words, it's a high-ranking Gentile who has Jewish people coming on on his behalf. Neither Naaman nor the centurion meet the prophet of God. Naaman never meets Elisha. Elisha gives him these instructions. The centurion doesn't meet Jesus. Both of them were healed from afar. And so here Luke is telling us the story, and this centurion is, in a way, a profile of the, power, of the powerful, a profile of a person who's got the rank, who's got the authority, who's well-regarded, who's socially sort of of high regard. And Jesus acting in this way has a certain trigger attached to it. We'll, We'll revisit that. But Luke is also preparing us to see something that he's about to tell. You remember that I told you that that Luke wrote uh, this book and the book of Acts uh, likely at the same time, and that they were just broken up into two scrolls or two sections so that they could be, it was easier to deliver it that way. But it's a remarkable parallel, if you ever want to do this study, outline the progression of events in a, in a macro way in Luke and then the events in Acts, and you'll find some very interesting parallels. Luke's story of Jesus begins with the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary and bringing 
the birth of the Messiah. Acts begins with the Holy Spirit overshadowing the church and bringing them to birth, so to speak, in the world. And then you have Luke tell, in, in Acts telling us about the gospel spreading beyond Jerusalem into Gentile regions. This is the same thing that happens here in Luke's gospel. Here's Jesus freshly anointed after his Sermon on the Mount, or Sermon on the Plain in Luke's Gospel, and now beginning to act out what he's just proclaimed. Does that make sense? He's been anointed in Luke 4, Luke 5, and 6. He's talking about uh, the, the core of what it means to live in the kingdom. And now Luke 7, we see Jesus taking this outside Israel. He's going to a Gentile. The person in Acts that, that, that this centurion is a little bit like is like Cornelius. And you know this story in Acts 10. Both, again, are well-respected Gentiles. Both were sympathetic to our Jews. The centurion built the synagogue. Cornelius was, a, was a, known for an alms, as an almsgiver, you know, giving to the poor. And both sent message, messengers to this man of God. Cornelius sends messengers to Peter, the centurion, to Jesus. So the, these parallels here are likely on purpose. Luke is using the storytelling thing. But the thing that we're supposed to pay attention to about the centurion is not, yes, we, okay, we see this echo of Naaman and this foreshadowing of Cornelius that we're going to hear about, but the thing we're supposed to pay attention to is this is a man of great faith. This is a person who's got great faith. And, 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 and what is exactly uh, this faith? I mean, let's think about it for a moment. For him to say to Jesus, okay, look, I am under authority. I understand how this works. Implied in that is he's saying, there is a God who is the God of heaven and earth. There is a God who is God over all, not just like an individual God for harvest and then another itty-bitty God for this. And no, he, I, I, there is one sovereign Lord, and somehow you are his agent. You're, you have his authority, right? This act, this request why does Jesus say, all right, you've got great faith. I haven't even seen this kind of great faith in Israel. Is this person is saying, look, we believe something. I, I, by, by me asking you to do this, I believe that there is one who has this authority and somehow you are able to act in his name. You act with his authority, so you say it. I don't know if this is the same. I don't think it's quite the same as saying you're divine or you're the son of God, but he's on to something. He gets it. And you wonder if Jesus is saying, look, this kind of faith is not even in Israel because do they see me with that sort of authority? Do they understand that I am walking their streets carrying with me the authority of Yahweh? Do they understand that all their prayer for God to pay attention and all their hope and longing for Yahweh to act and intervene, do they get that I am here? Do they see it? That God acting to save and redeem is, he is acting through me. That I am his agent, his prophet, the one that represents and speaks with, acts with his authority. Maybe another way to say that is I am the anointed one, the Messiah again. And maybe Jesus is saying, look, this centurion, he's onto this. He recognizes that I am and I have this authority. And even in Israel, there are those that don't even see it yet, don't believe yet. A story like this is easy for us to say, okay, here we go. 
Let's teach out of Luke 7, 1 through 10, and we'll, we'll, we'll come up with a little formula here for how everybody gets healed. And we'll say, okay, here's what it takes. It takes uh, just saying the word, and so we're just going to say the word. And if we say the word, then everybody will be healed, and we don't need this. And, we, you know. and it, it's our temptation to take one story and to universalize it and say, aha, we found the secret key to make God act. We'll just say, God, you've got all authority. Yeah, yeah. Did, did that do it? God, I believe that you can heal. Was that it? Just to save us from that sort of narrow, formularizing sort of temptation, Luke tells us another story very quickly. In Luke 7, verse 11, it starts with this. Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. And as he approached the town gate, a man who had died was being carried out. The only son of his mother, who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion for her and said to her, Do not weep. And he came up and touched the bier, which is the idea of this is, a, is the, the, the body of the son is wrapped and being carried on, uh, you know, what is called a litter. You know, this is sort of this, this um, thing with poles, canvas, you know, whatever, and the body's laying and they're carrying it. And Jesus comes up and touches it. And those who carried it stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, get up. And so the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear seized them all, and they began to glorify God, saying, a great prophet has appeared among us, and God has come to help his people. And this report about Jesus circulated throughout Judea and all the surrounding country. Like the story of this centurion, the story of this widow is meant to make us think of another Old Testament story. Do you remember in that same chapter in Luke 4 when Jesus quotes the scroll of Isaiah and then he says, okay, look, look, remember, wasn't Elisha sent to Naaman who was an outsider, a Gentile? And then he says, weren't there many widows in the land of Israel at the time? And yet Elijah was not sent to any of them but to the Shunammite widow. What's the story of the Shunammite widow? She's poor, she has an only son, right? And Elijah comes and multiplies the, the oil and all this stuff, right? But then what happens after that? Do you remember this? Elijah comes back to visit her and she says, my son's gone, he's dead. Has God forsaken me now? And Elijah says, no. And he leans down and he prays and this boy rises up again and the phrase that's in the story is, and the Elijah gave her son back to the mother, to the widow. It's the same phrase that Luke's using when he says, and Jesus gave the son back to his mother. It's meant to make us think of this echo. Excuse me, it's not the Shunammite widow, it's the widow of Zarephath. This town of Nain is on the other side of the hill from where the Shunammite widow was. And so that's another story, this time of Elisha, who raises this widow's son from the dead. I want to suggest to you that these miracles that Jesus is doing are not random. That they're not Jesus performing party tricks. Hey guys, check this out. You know? Some of the um, blatantly 
uh, uh, unreliable, false accounts of Jesus' life, fantasize a boyhood Jesus making clay pigeons and animating them and using power, you know, and I don't know. I mean, what I find remarkable is the Gospels that we trust as Scripture show us a Jesus who does specific miracles for specific reasons. He's trying to say something here. We'll come back to that in a minute. If the centurion is a picture to us of great faith, certainly this widow is a picture to us of great despair. Think of this woman here who already is without a husband and now her only son, the only person who can provide for her, take care of her, feed her. You know this, but in that day, there's no way you're going to go get a job somewhere if you're a woman. And so her son is her sustenance. And for him to die is for her to say, it's over. Imagine this scene, if you would, walking into this town and on the street and seeing this procession. And it says that there were many people around her. This idea is very often in, in, in a Jewish sort of funeral procession, there would be people who were asked to come and mourn loudly. Now that, at, at first blush, to our sort of uh, culture feels like a sham. There are people who don't know, that, don't know the people who were asked to come and like cry. Like, why would they do that? You know why? It's so the ones who's lost, the one who, who is mourning can cry loudly and not be ashamed. It's so that when the widow is bawling her eyes out and screaming, that nobody's going to stop and stare and say, Woo! But there's a whole noise of mourners. That there's a group of people saying, Oh, God! And so the one who is grieving has permission to grieve with the full strength of that emotion and not be told, Shh, you're kind of interrupting here. No, see, and I just, this is just a little side thing, but I wonder if there's something about the community grieving together of saying, look, it's okay if you cry. It's not going to, it's, it's okay. Uh, we, uh, we have a, a relative who lost a, a teenage daughter, Holly's cousin, several years ago now. And every time we would come together for Thanksgiving or Christmas, it was always sort of awkward. We'd get together and say, well, uh, what do we say? Do we say, hey, <laughs> how are you? You know, or do we say, and it was almost like he was, the dad was feeling like, well, shit, I don't want to cry. The mom said, do I, I don't want to bring down Christmas, you know. And what if we said, you know what, to heck with it. Let's just all just sit around here and cry and bawl and wail for a long time, and it's okay. So that we give dignity to the one who's grieving. That it's okay to protest. It's okay to say this isn't right. It's okay to be in great despair. There was a, a, a major funeral that happened last year for a renowned, charismatic, I'll say preacher to be a bit more ambiguous. And one of the other charismatic faith preachers who spoke at the funeral said to everybody, stop crying. Don't cry. Don't mourn. That's a lack of faith, he said. I want to tell you that Jesus enters this loud, wailing, crying procession and stands in the midst of it. I want to tell you that when we grieve and when we mourn and when we are in distress, and yes, even despair, that there is a safety within the community of God to do that. 
Whose faith raises the woman's son from the dead? Whose faith? Was it hers because she's so, you know, she was in despair and then she said, oh no, no faith, Lord. The way Luke tells us this story, we don't even know if she knows who Jesus is. The way Luke tells us this story, we don't even know if she sees Jesus come in. Does great faith get God's attention? What if you're in great despair? What if you can't see beyond your tears? What if you can't see the day after tomorrow? What if your eyes are blurred with tears? Does God see you then? Does Jesus see you then? Or is it only when we impress him with great faith? Fear seized them all, and they began to glorify God, saying, A great prophet has appeared among us, and God has come to help his people. This phrase, God has come, is not just he's popped in for tea. It's the very phrase that the prophets use for the holy visitation of God. The saving arrival of God. When they see this, they say, it's here. He's here. God is on the scene to save, to restore, to heal. A great prophet. Obviously, Luke is telling us both of these stories to make us think of the other great prophets, Elisha and Elijah. I think if we don't read our Bibles paying attention to timelines and uh, geography, it's easy to get the impression that, well, didn't miracles just happen all the time? The short answer is no. I'm sorry if that's disturbing to you. You see a lot of miracles around Moses and the deliverance of the Exodus, a great prophet. And then you have to wait a few hundred years or so or more till you get to Elijah. Then you see tons of miracles around Elijah and Elisha. And then you're waiting a long time until Jesus. But we want to say, oh, but then once we get to Jesus, we turn the corner, right? I mean, aren't, isn't the book of Acts full of all these miracles? The book of Acts takes place over, what, 30 years or so? Five different cities, three different cities at least? Antioch, Jerusalem, Ephesus... Plot out those miracles by those decades, by those cities. Tell me if they were everyday occurrences. No, they weren't. Uh, But here's the thing. Jesus is the great prophet. Of course we know he's more than that. Of course we know he's the son of God himself. But Luke tells us these stories, these particular miracles, to make us think, wait a second. Moses, Elijah, Elisha? Is God visiting his people? Has God broken in? Is God actually coming to save? The question that we return to again is to whom does Jesus pay attention? To whom does Jesus paying attention? Which one is he looking at? Some would say it's the clean, right? Not the unclean, the ceremonially clean and unclean. But wait a second. If Jesus had gone into the centurion's home, that would have made him unclean. He's a Gentile. And wait, Jesus touched the, 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 this casket thing. 
That makes him unclean. So obviously Jesus is not paying attention to clean or unclean. Oh, well, well, maybe it's, it's Jews. Maybe Jesus came just for, for the Jews. But, but wait a second. This is a Gentile. Okay. Well, well, who, who is Jesus paying? Maybe it's the, the ones who are powerful in society. That's why he heals the centurion's servant. What do you say about the widow who's, if the centurion is a profile of the powerful, the widow is a profile of the powerless. So it's not the powerful or the powerless or the clean or the unclean or the Jew or the Gentile. What is it? I think this text tells us that Jesus looks on the lowly. Jesus looks on the lowly. I love the centurion's response. The Jewish elders say, this guy deserves it. And he says, please tell him I don't. Please tell him I'm not worthy. Even the one who is powerful in society says, I, I, no, I, do, I, I really I don't deserve this. I'm not worthy of this. And the widow, she, she's got no room to sort of exalt herself. She's just saying, oh, I'm in the midst of despair and grief. And Jesus looks on the lowly. Reminds me of the words of Isaiah, the prophet. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made so that all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble, contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. Are you here tonight with great faith? Good. Wonderful. Are you here tonight believing that God can speak and something will change? Yeah. Are you here tonight with great despair? Saying, I, I just, I don't know. I just, I, I, to be honest, I just can't see beyond this right here. I want to say to you tonight that it's not as important that you're here or how you're here or what you're here with, but that He is here, that Jesus is here, that He is in our midst. To the one who has great faith, He is here. To the one who can't see beyond your tears, He is here. He's entered into it. Lent is the season where we remember Jesus entering into our world, not as the powerful, but as the lowly. I am lowly in spirit, Jesus said. New Testament reading for tonight, Philippians 2. Jesus has entered our world. He's in our midst. Friend of the lowly one. Friend of the humble one. Uh, my prayer for myself and for you and for all of us is that this is the time, if ever there was one, to begin to lower ourselves and to say, okay, God, I'm not going to shake my fist and say you owe me and you've got to and I found the magic words to twist your arms and I've got the key to unlock this or that. 
but to say, Jesus, Lord, have mercy. I'm, I'm lowly. I'm weak. Something about the story of this scene that of Jesus and the son, this widow. It's almost this foreshadow of what Luke will tell us later. That there's another mother weeping over the body of her son. And God will raise him from the dead too. But his resurrection's nothing like this boy's resurrection. This boy was resuscitated. He was brought back to life to die again later. But God raises Jesus from the dead never to die again. God raises Jesus from the dead in a death-defeating resurrection. Paul says he's the first fruit for the rest of us who are in Christ looking for the resurrection of the dead. What is the comfort for the lowly? It is that Jesus has come and made himself low and God raised him up. And that all who are in Christ will too one day be raised up with a new body that will never die in a death-defeating life because we have made ourselves low, but really because He made Himself low on our behalf. Amen? Jesus is here. Let's pray. Lord, as different ones of us set aside things during the season of Lent, we're not doing it for ritual or for um, just some kind of compulsion, but would your spirit lead us? Uh, lead us to, to set things aside just as a tangible way of saying we're lowering ourselves. God, we don't want to pretend that we're the deserving, worthy ones. Well, we're not. We're not. Often we're the ones in despair. Thank you, Jesus, that you're in our midst. Thank you that you stand in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our question, sorrow. Thank you that by your Spirit, you are with each of us in that way. God, we're not here to twist your arm to make you do this or that. But we believe. We're here to say we believe, Jesus, that you're the great one. We need you. We're low. We're lowly. Jesus, friend of the lowly, be near to each of us by your spirit tonight. Walk with us. Teach us to humble ourselves. Teach us to embrace your grace. And so may we remember how Christ has entered into our suffering. May we have eyes to see and hearts to believe that by the Holy Spirit,
Christ has entered our midst even now. And may we, by God's grace, humble ourselves before his mercy. And may Christ speak his word of life to us, that we will begin to come alive. By the power of the Spirit, in Jesus' name, to the glory of the Father, everybody said, Amen. Amen.